Welcome to BIV Daily, our podcast series from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. Welcome to our special series this week on human resources, on the effects of the pandemic on work life and how employers and employees can best navigate these new challenges. Our presenting sponsors for this series are the professional services firm Deloitte, the law firm Harrison Company, and the workers' compensation company, WorkSafe BC. Now, COVID-19 quickly disrupted the scheduled work routine and offices and factories, and it sent many people home to work uh, and to work from other remote locations for that matter, often, though, idling many people to await a reopening of business. Never before have we seen such systemic change in how we earn and contribute in such a hurry. How do we maintain the trusted employee-employee relationship, and how do we ensure a more resilient response to these critical challenges? Our series this week is going to look at various aspects of this and examine where it might lead. Today, my guest is Jennifer Lee. She's managing partner growth platforms and value creation services at Deloitte. And she's actually been overseeing a big part of Deloitte's worldwide response to COVID-19. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me, Kirk. Well, let's start with this whole trust relationship because the trust relationship is so integral mm-hmm. to the work, right? And, and, and yet, you know, here we are now, a lot of us not seeing each other except in ways like this on, on Zoom. Uh, how are we going to maintain this as we go forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I believe, let me back up a bit. Deloitte was, I had led a, a significant piece of research pre-COVID around the topic of trust. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to show that employers were the most trusted group um, uh, amongst uh, customers and employees. And that was really interesting given you'd expect that to be government. Mm-hmm. Now, now we're in COVID and the data has shifted. Governments are highly trusted as are employers. So we, we're in a, a, an environment right now that is high trust. The big question I think that employers and corporations need to be thinking about is how do I maintain trust as my business starts to move into recovery and as we start to think about how to thrive. And in our research, we focused on four areas, Uh, physical safety, emotional, psychological safety, financial safety, and digital safety. Really, those four components make up trust. And if we believe that trust is a human experience, as is recovery and thriving, we, we need to figure out how to meet all those four dimensions for our employees. Yeah. I mean, the, the physical safety one uh, gets a, a lot of attention, doesn't it? I mean, the yes. idea that the employers need to make sure that when, if employees return, uh, they're, uh, they're looked after, that they've got adequate uh, social distancing, that there are physical practices in the workforce that, that uh, mitigate risk, those kinds of things. So is, is, that, is that kind of the starting block? In, in all of this, that physical safety has to be, you know, at least the thing you absolutely must look after. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. For So first, physical safety, first and foremost. However, I think that, that we risk taking a white collar lens to that discussion uh-huh. around physical safety. Mm-hmm. I think if, if you're a manufacturer and you have people who work in the, the manufacturing plants or you produce product, the, the, and they have been... Um, they've already been working all through the pandemic, especially if they're in essential service. This calls into question 
do you start to create a dichotomy between your head office employees that work in the office and the, the employees that need to show up every day? Yeah, so there's a, those are two individual strategies that employers will need to consider because this option of working remotely just doesn't exist for, for a huge part of our population. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I'm, I'm in a much advantaged position. I'm in a, a craft where, frankly, you can do a lot of work remotely. Yeah, uh, it's not it's not the case for a vast part of our workforce. And so so then how, how does an employer keep that trust when when the employer knows that in some cases people almost have to uh, operate kind of shoulder to shoulder in some cases? Well, this is where the physical barriers become so important, the investment, like the capital investment, so that the plants and the manufacturing facilities are safe. Um, This is going to require agile scheduling, which will slow down production in some cases. Um, But demonstrating that you are making the required investments for safety, for physical safety, for workers that don't have the option to work from home. This is the most critical component. So if I remove head office for a second, if I, if I were in the employer's shoes, that's where I'd be spending my time. Because you, what you don't want is a situation where you didn't spend the, make the capital investment and an infection spread throughout. Because that in itself is, is, doesn't tie well to your brand. No, and, and it obviously violates the trust relationship almost instantly, doesn't it? If it Absolutely. If felt like one of the colleagues was put in harm's way, well, that could be me. Absolutely. Yeah. And when we go back to resilient leadership and resilient organizations, from our research, what it showed was that resilient leaders are trusted leaders. Mm-hmm. So if you want followership to as you emerge into the thrive stage of the pandemic, then if you don't have the followership, you have really have nothing. Yeah. W- one of the awakenings that may be happening in all of this might be around an employer's awareness of the psychological well-being of the workforce. I mean, you would know this very well in studying it, that it's only really been in recent times that that a lot of employers have taken the whole notion of, of psychological well-being as being integral to their performances. Do you see anything emerging out of the coronavirus where employers are are recognizing that uh, Well, first of all, that there's a fatigue factor that takes place in being under this kind of challenge for some time, but that now it's important for them to to find a new focus on the the well-being psychologically of, of those who are working for them. Yeah, that's a great question. I think emotional psychological safety is going to be focused on a few things. One is um, for those who are working at home, you have a number of factors and pressures that you're dealing with. And I think employers have started to recognize that. So one is you could be caring for elderly parents. You could have young children. Uh, I'm sitting right now in my niece's bedroom and doing this Zoom call. You have to find somewhere quiet to sit. Right. So suddenly, no, no, there's, no, no, there's going to be a dog that comes in or a child <laughs> in at any moment. Jennifer, you know that. That's what yeah, my, my are. kids are going to end up running in here. So there's a lot more empathy, I believe, which now exists for employers saying, you know what, if a if a dog comes barking in or a kid comes running through, it's okay. That's part of the person's life. Sure. And if and if an employee, if you want the employee to be able to function, we need to create some bandwidth 
for that person to operate within their, their home environment and under the pressures that they're facing. Conversely, you have a lot of younger individuals who may be living alone and the social isolation, the complete reverse, um, can have a huge mental mental wellness effects. So I think you're seeing a big focus on how do I re- maintain connectivity with my people? The second is, how do I create um, pods of communities so that people don't feel isolated? And how do I create support systems for those that still need to work but don't have childcare or elderly care access at the moment? So I think that cycle, they realize that an employee cannot focus and do their job well if they don't have the proper structures in place. Conversely, I think what's happened is a lot of assumptions about work has changed. This Mm -hmm. view that, you know, if you're not in the office, you're not really being effective. Well, most of the businesses are still continuing on to be effective. So now it's calling to question, maybe it's actually okay to have half my workforce work from home and the other half come into the office two days a week. Maybe I'm like Facebook and and a number of tech companies who've announced that they're going to start closing some of their head offices and, and have their workforce work from home. Maybe that could be a new model. Yeah. It, it occurs to me, though, in, in this, that it could advantage. In fact, it might even be advantaging now men over women in all of this. How, how, how much should we be worrying about that? Men over women in that, um, well, in what context? Well, in, in those who are taking care of their children at home, for instance, uh, who have to do double duty that way, that in, in some respect, this recovery, and I've, I've seen it referred to as, as a recovery that may advantage men over women. Yeah, that's an interesting comment. Um, I, I think it depends which age cohort you're talking about, because um, I think the younger, you know, at least I can only speak anecdotally from my experience, is that younger, um, even fathers, play an active role on caring for their children at home. It really comes down to um, if both spouses work um, and how flexible their jobs are, whether one's an essential worker or, or you're in a more white-collar job. I think you're right, though. On the whole, the women uh, and mothers tend to be the ones who, who care give the most. Yeah. Um, the the bigger I think what employers need to be thinking about is how flexible is a, a, or how much flexibility and agility am I providing in my work environment so that I can continue to employ talented women, right? So working in the evenings when the kids go to bed or creating blocks in your calendars so that you can take care of the children, how much flexibility am I providing? Yeah. That then you're not giving a, a, an advantage to potentially a male who doesn't have the same pressures to work a traditional schedule. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about resilience because it is such a, a critical factor in all of this. And you can, you can see obviously great examples wherever you are right now in your work of those that, uh, that appear to have a, a grade more of this foundationally in, in their systems intrinsically. And those that are having to essentially learn basically new muscle groups in order to develop it. What are the, what are the ways in which it's possible to build greater resilience in a workforce? That's a great question. Um, So I went around the world and I studied organizations through the pandemic on how they have not only built resilience into their operating model, but how they built resilient leadership teams. And we did this very quickly because Deloitte was looking at 
how do we help our clients uh, endure the pandemic? And this is what we found. One is resilient leaders understand that they need to shift their mindset to one of responding to today's pressures to one of looking towards the future. And while that sounds extremely basic, mm. a lot of organizations are, were, are still in this fight or flight mode. So they don't necessarily spend the time thinking through my reinvention. Um, how do I start to transform my company? How do other organizations do it? Looking at the market and also moving to one of growth versus trying to stop the bleeding and contingency planning and you know crisis management. So that, that's one big step. The second one is resilient organizations do a good job on managing their uncertainties. So you can't solve for everything in the world, but what you can do is identify the three or four uncertainties that would materially impact your business and start to create scenarios for when, how I would respond to each of those uncertainties. By doing that, organizations then say, okay, I have three different scenarios that could play out. These are three different responses that we could configure ourselves for. Why is that important? Because by reducing the, the number of scenarios or uncertainties in the, in the market and in the world, you're able to get your management team to focus. Right. right. So I was just trying to manage the amount of, let's call it craziness, priorities, options that are available to you, it makes your head swim to a point where we say, okay, we have our, our arms around two or three things that could happen. The, the third major thing that, that resilient organizations do well is they understand the trust equation. They understand the four dimensions of trust and how they need to embed those four dimensions in their customer base, how they treat their customers how they treat their employees, their communities, and their shareholders and their suppliers. So suddenly the trust equation gets embedded in their strategy as they think about recovery and in Thrive. Yeah. And finally, uh, no, go ahead. I was gonna say finally the most important is they actually have a plan. Oh, so yeah. they, they manage their, their future much more strategically than those who are just busy responding. Okay, so so I, I've met a, a lot of managers who are doing this, and they uh, they are, are subjected to so much information that they almost don't know how to organize it properly in yep. order to be sufficiently transparent and yet not be dark and gloomy and doomy with their employees to to essentially frighten them about the future. Um, it, talk a bit about that transparency piece and how integral it is in terms of the trust relationship, first off, and secondly, how it can help build resilience or, or ruin it if you, if you handle it improperly. Yeah, that's a great question. Transparency is, uh, in my mind, about how much you involve the employee in designing the future. So if it is done in a black box with two or three executives in a dark room and you're charting out your future, then of course that's going to be lack of transparency will create fear. But in my experience and some of the work I'm doing now with some clients who are looking to thrive, it's about how do we create a forum using Zoom as an example to have a lab and talk about all the possible futures for our company. And there's ways within technology to create breakout rooms and brainstorming sessions and have the ideas float to the top. So it, you don't have to be a big company to be able to do this. It's about how do I get my people to be involved in the process 
as we're starting to build out where our thrive plan could look like. So that then reduces fear and develops understanding, also teaches them a new skill about how do you actually plan in a pandemic? Mm. Yeah. Obviously, so many people have their identities wrapped up in, um, in their work. Um, and part of that identity also comes with the communal nature of, uh, of a setting, whether it's an office or a factory, you know, that, that they like that creativity and collaborative quality that emerges when you get people all together. Mm-hmm. So, so might we be moving toward at least understanding that we, we have to get a chunk of this back, that we can't just do this remotely, despite all of the technology that you just mentioned? Uh, absolutely. I, I still believe business is done through relationships. It's done by, uh, by developing trusting relationships, and you, that cannot be done remotely. It's problem, my guess is that we'll end up with a hybrid model, a model where a lot of our assumptions about how work is done will be challenged and, and reinvented, but also how business will be done. I, I think that we had an assumption that if I wanted to go do business, I had to jump on a plane and fly to China or fly to Germany or wherever. And maybe that's not the case. Maybe if I have a great relationship with someone, I'm able to execute business over Zoom. But initially, I need to spend the time to develop those trusting relationships, which will require physical um, interaction. So I think that it's we're, we're going to move to a world of a, a hybrid model, not just one or the other. And what that allows us to do is be much more flexible in how we do business. Do we, um, do we run the risk right now? Um, because here we are in Canada, we're doing, I think, reasonably well, certain parts better than others, obviously, in, in handling the first wave of the pandemic. Um, are, are we in a stage right now where we're beginning to draw premature conclusions about how it's actually going to look when we, we haven't yet really conquered COVID-19? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's dangerous to draw any early conclusions. And this is why understanding scenarios are so important. Mm-hmm. So when we talk to our clients, and the one, at least the clients I've been working with, we, we actually draw out a scenario where maybe it's a V-shaped pandemic and it's done in September. Highly unlikely, given what we're seeing in the U.S., um, but it could be in a, a scenario. How will you respond? What if it's a W-shaped pandemic where it goes away, comes back, it goes away, comes back? Or maybe it's a WW-shaped where it just keeps happening until a vaccine is found. Those scenarios are important discussions because it's naive for a business to, or a leader to think that once and done, it's not going to be the case. We've seen it around the world. The question is, how do you plan for that? And how do you manage? Yeah. How, how do you, but how do you keep that? Oh, my goodness. How, how do you keep both those resilience and trust qualities when, it, you know, it, it just feels like it's going to drag on? Well, you know, the, this is, um, it's a great question because in a professional services environment, you know, you talk to a lot of the partners, we're exhausted. And I think that a lot of leaders in, in across Canada just feel like there's mental fatigue from the t- on the topic of COVID. I think that um, the, they need to be able to take breaks. 
So how do you disconnect completely while you're on holiday to get that mental break you need? Because if it comes back a second wave, then you need to be ready. So that's one, recognizing that it's okay to be tired and that you need a bit, you need a break. And that is something that's not discussed openly in the corporate world, right? No, it's, right. it's seen as a sign of weakness, for goodness sake. Exactly. Yeah. But I say this openly because I think it's a very important thing to say um, and to give people permission to take that mental break. Mm-hmm. Second is, um, the big question is, what did we learn the first time around that we can apply to the second time, when the second wave? So we've done some very positive things. We've broken down silos. We've gotten work done more efficiently. We cut through the bureaucracy. Whatever those topics are, let's celebrate that and actually embed it into our workflow to be prepared for the second round. When I talk to my colleagues in China, all of it is around, what did I learn the first time around to prepare for the second wave? Because they're very much expecting a second wave to come. Okay, Jennifer, you sitting on top of all of this information worldwide with all of these responsibilities, I can ask you a personal question, which is, how are you taking care of yourself in all of this? It's a good question. Um, I, I actually spend, um, I, I've taken this opportunity to exercise because I was, previous to COVID, I was on a plane almost 40 to 50% of the time because oh. I'm managing, I manage one of our global businesses. And I have two small children, they're eight and 10, and my husband also works. Um, and what's been amazing in the pandemic is one, I get up early and I've taken up cycling Mm -hmm. and I cycle 10 to 20 kilometers every morning. And then I begin working because I don't have to run for the plane. I don't have to run to the office Mm -hmm. and also use the opportunity to spend time with my kids and build breaks into my day so I can go and have lunch with them, which is something I never did before because they were in school or I was traveling. So there are a number of positives and I put them to bed at night because I can see them now um, when they go to sleep. Yeah. So th- those are the, the, the opportunities that I'm grateful for. So maybe now it's uh, it's an opportunity to learn a bit about ourselves as well. And, and, you know, I've, I, I can speak very personally. I've been building well-being and wellness into my day and also pandemics give you perspective. Mm. Um, You know, everything that we're doing is important, but it's about prioritization. And when I think about trust, we need to apply those concepts to ourselves. Are Mm. we taking our care of ourselves physically, emotional, psychologically, financially, right? Because that's a huge area of stress for people. And also digitally, am I taking, am I shutting my computer down and just turning off? Yeah. Well, I'm glad people kept their computers on to watch us here today. (laughs) Uh, they can turn them off immediately right after that. But Jennifer, it's been great talking to you and, and uh, you're really doing some very exciting work there. And, but, you know, don't, don't let it wear you down, right? Of course. I'm, it's, it's a discipline I'm trying to keep. Let's put it that way. All right. Jennifer Lee is the Managing Partner, Growth Platforms and Value Creation Services at Deloitte. You've been watching BIV Daily, our special series on human resources. I'm Kirk Point, publisher and editor-in-chief. We'll see you again.